Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLean Agency. And today we have a true cyber celebrity with us, Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul, thank you for joining. Oh, happy to be here today, Mark. So Dr. Paul, um, my question to you is, how does a guy who grew up end up becoming uh, a senior social scientist at the Rand Corporation? Yeah, so uh, I, I worked I lived in, and grew up in Los Angeles. I, I went to UCLA, uh, ended up as a sociology major because I understood that it covered all the things I was interested in. Uh, having majored in sociology as an undergraduate, I continued and did graduate school in sociology again at UCLA since I'd done a junior year abroad and discovered I kind of liked living in Los Angeles. Uh, early in my graduate career, one of my, my classmates said, Chris, numbers are money. Learn to crunch numbers, learn some statistics, and you'll never want for research assistance dollars in this department. So I took a bunch of statistics classes and unbeknownst to me, one of my, my professors was actually working part-time at RAND consulting on a breast cancer study. The principal investigator said, hey, I, I need some additional quantitative analysts to do some, some data entry and some, some preliminary data analysis. And this, this professor says, oh, I, I have a couple of uh, graduate students that, that might be suitable. So, so RAND actually called me to come in and interview for quantitative analyst position while I was in graduate school. Uh, I really liked Rand and its mission and how it how it does research. And so when I finished my degree, I, I applied to stay. Sure. Oh, very interesting. Uh, let's jump right into it. Um, you know, for our listeners on the call, they may not be aware of what cognitive security is. Can you explain that to them? Yeah. So cognitive security is a, a new word for maybe an older concept. It's it's the idea that I mean, we can talk about physical security, whether you're 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 safe. Uh, we can talk about food security and food insecurity or economic security. Cognitive security is about the, the safety of your ideas and your thought processes. Taken from a national perspective, cognitive security is about how do we protect our citizens and their, their right to think what they want and to participate in national politics from foreign interference. Now, this again, this isn't a new idea if we go back to, to classic principles of, of war. Uh, uh, Clausewitz and his famous dictum that war is politics by other other means and that war is a contest of wills. Well, the idea of a contest of wills fundamentally gets down to cognitive security. Sure, sure. So is AI affecting propaganda in 2022, 2023? Yes, to some extent, kind of, kind of little a, little I, AI, things like bots, uh, you know, automated, automated amplification. Uh, the future for for AI and propaganda is unfortunately large, right? Because the right now current bots are really just just echoes, right? Automated ways to send more messages. But as as more sophisticated AI personas become possible and are then turned to propagandistic purposes, there's there's greater danger on that. I did I did some thinking with one of my colleagues, uh, Mark Possard, on. <clears throat> excuse me, the implications of, of AI for propaganda. And so the, one of the, the basic tools in AI is, a, again, a, a generative adversarial network where you set up some kind of structure where 
you get two AI to play against each other. One one is a generator and, and builds a stuff a bunch of stuff trying to accomplish some goal, and the other tries to detect it and, and prevent it from accomplishing that goal. Well, if you were unethical and you had the right tools, you could use that logic, playing one AI against another AI, except take away the second AI and play it against real people. Sure. And an experimental mindset where you let an AI provoke and message and engage with real people and then observe their responses and learn from how they respond, it could conceivably build some, some logics to provoke responses in people. That's dangerous stuff. Absolutely. So, so uh, speaking about dangerous stuff, um, given some of the geopolitical events that we've seen over the past six months, <clears throat> are you, in your opinion, are countries now spending more money on propaganda campaigns or are they spending more money on soldiers and staffing those soldiers now? What is more effective to trying to get their message across? Well, so that, 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 that there's several layers to that question. Uh, propaganda is cheap relative to guns, bullets, bombs, and airplanes. So countries, especially some of our adversaries and competitors, are spending a great deal more money than they used to and than we are on propaganda, but still quite a bit less than we or they are spending on conventional capabilities. Now, as to the level of effectiveness, that's one of the tricky things. It's tricky to measure the effectiveness or to anticipate the effectiveness here because stuff in the kinetic space, guns, bombs, airplanes, although it's hard to predict, these things are governed by physics. Mm -hmm. If you drop enough tonnage of bombs on something, you're going to reduce it to rubble. Mm -hmm. If you drop enough propaganda on something, who knows what happens? How much is enough? How effective is it? Uh, but one of the things we've seen looking at, at recent history over the last 10 years is the power of integrated physical and informational campaigns. Uh, I think the, the, the best example of that is the 2014 Russian annexation of Crimea, the way they infiltrated little green men, soldiers without uniforms, and accompanied that with a vigorous cyber attack against Ukraine to kind of prevent domestic news reporting from leaking out and the way they generated obfuscatory propaganda in the rest of the West enough to, to create ambiguity about whose soldiers are these, what are they doing, what's happening, uh, succeeded in kind of paralyzing the West, a West which maybe wasn't that inclined to respond to that provocation anyway, uh, and create this fait accompli where they had put their forces in position, had de facto control. And so again, integrated physical and informational, highly effective. Can you can you explain to our listeners, um, you know, we hear the terms deep fake and shallow fake. What do they mean? And is one more effective than the other? Yeah, so so deep fake is this new AI built. So I, I, my understanding is it actually originated in the, the pornography industry, taking an existing piece of pornography and then superimposing a different famous actor or actresses. Uh, head and features onto the body so that so that you imagine that it's pornography with someone particularly special and it done done well it uses ai to create video that looks and sounds like some other person so you can and there, there have been examples where uh you see some ai designer talking and then nicholas cage's face and voice sure. repeats exactly what he says sure. uh and most of the time the ones that we've seen, you can kind of tell, wait a minute, that's not exactly right, except they're getting better and better. They're starting to blink. Uh, so in the future, any we, we are inclined as humans to trust our eyes and a, a 
video recording. We know that there's movies and special effects, but still we believe what we see. And so the, the danger of making some prominent person do or say something that they didn't actually do or say could be very convincing. So that's a deep fake. A shallow fake is a, a, a bad effort to do the same kind of thing that's much cheaper and much easier. So maybe you just take real video of someone talking and you dub over a different voice and at low resolution on low bandwidth that, oh, is that really them saying that? Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Or you could just take uh, another another common kind of, of deep fake is claiming a video is of something that it isn't. So if you take video of a riot from four years ago and you post on your feed, oh my gosh, there's a riot happening in downtown wherever today, uh, the shock value of that, the, hey, that's real footage of a riot. Mm, hey, check the metadata. Wait a minute. Yeah, uh, sure. or, or even if it's not the, you know, just, is that really here? Is that really now and today? Which is more effective? Obviously, the deep fake potentially more effective when it's done really, really well. Uh, but shallow fakes, because humans are vulnerable to being trick manipulated and deceived, can also be very effective. Sure, sure. So, so earlier on, you know, we were talking about Russia propaganda. Is there anything different about uh, the way that the Russians do it versus other countries? And then my second question is, is, you know, we see the words RT a lot when it has to do with Russian propaganda. What does that mean? Sure. So RT, I'll start with that question and then come back to their, their general approach. So RT is formerly Russia Today, and I think they made it just RT to partially obfuscate the fact that it's Russian. Because if, if you just say RT, what is that? You might not know that it stands for Russia Today, but it's their official state-run broadcast medium. And it's it's a really pernicious station. It's in about 30 different languages. And it's this interesting blend of infotainment, just kind of fluff pieces, propaganda, stone cold, made up, fabricated junk, and very occasionally really good investigative journalism, which can be really tricky in certain audiences. Because if there's a, a small market, say a country that has a, a, a is a relatively small market, if RT sends investigative journalism and does a really good job on some issue of particular importance in that country and then plays that piece over and over again in that country, people will say, oh, RT, they have good good journalists. They're, they're really doing a good job. Sure. And then when they see some, some later piece that is totally fabricated, they might think, oh, RT, I have a lot of respect for them. And they might believe it. So, so coming back to Russia's general approach to propaganda, it's interesting that everything old is new again. A lot of the things that Russia does now are things that the Soviet Union did back during the Cold War, their active measures, their efforts to plant false stories in foreign newspapers and then use other sources and cutouts to echo those those false stories in an interest in the interest of doing something like Project Infection, where they tried to spread the story that AIDS was a CIA invention. Sure. Uh, except in the modern information environment, it's so much easier because you don't have to to work and get some actual physical newspaper run by other people in another country to print your, your made up story. You can just print it yourself and then use a different persona to cite it yourself and then cross cut it. Uh, as to whether that's different from what, what other countries do, there are other countries that are bad actors that echo Russia's model. Uh, Russia and China learn some things from each other. Iran participates in the disinformation space. It is different than, than what we in the United States do because we have freedom of information and we have a government that is, that is principally committed to the truth in its international broadcasting. So while in the West, uh, several different countries have 
have a, an international broadcasting arm, usually like our own formerly broadcasting board of governors, now US, uh, uh, US AGM, uh, what does AGM stand for? Uh, US Agency for Global Media is, is what the, the broadcasting board of governors has become. It's, it's a government entity, but it has, has very clear separation and independence from the rest of the government. And they do real independent journalism with the intention of maintain, uh, establishing and maintaining credibility as journalists globally, but sharing st sharing stories of shared importance. Totally different from, say, RT, which is uh, an arm of the the Russian government, and it is it is unashamedly their propaganda arm. And is there um, <clears throat> is there countries, whether it be uh, the ones that are creating it, what, what is propaganda, uh, counter propaganda, and how are people using counter propaganda? Yeah, so so counter propaganda is kind of vaguely defined, and in in principle, it's the idea of hey, if there's propaganda and it's having bad effects, trying to to counter that. Uh, so it's 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 just what it says on the tin. Uh, there's lots of different ways to to talk or to think about how to do that. Most of the time, the way people focus on it is to to take it at, at face value. If you're countering propaganda. Either you are counter messaging or doing a counter narrative where you're trying to claim the opposite of whatever the propaganda is or overwhelm it with the truth or counteract it, uh, uh, which unfortunately the research in social psychology suggests isn't very effective because the first mover advantage is hugely important. So if someone says something and people start to believe it and then you come back and say, no, no, wait, don't believe that, believe this instead, that is not a very effective approach. Uh, other efforts at, at counter-propaganda try to identify the propagandists and cut them out of the network, deplatform them, uh, enforce terms of service violations against them. Uh, I think recently RT has been banned in certain forms in media across the European Union because it's just recognized as, hey, this is this is Russian state-run propaganda. We we can't collectively support that that kind of egregious violation of the principles of, of freedom of information. I think that's actually a very effective counter-propaganda effort, except it's still available on the internet. And Russia uses other less well-known unofficial sources to spread their propaganda. So it's, and it, 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 it follows a lot of the same cybersecurity challenges. Uh, there's this cycle of adaptation and counter-adaptation. If you, if you, if you find a counter propaganda practice like deplatforming that's somewhat effective, then the propagandists will become better at hiding who they are and where they are. Uh, if you if you find a good counter message, then propagandists will abandon that theme and find some other lie to spread. Sure, sure. So in, in, in your personal opinion, I know this is uh, somewhat uh, uh, high, uh, pie in the sky, but is there anything the United States could do to help prevent this, mitigate it, um, reduce it, you know, any which way, or is it just always kind of a game of whack-a-mole when it comes to this type of uh, propaganda? Yeah, so there, there are lots of things that could be done, but the, I think the first point is there's no single silver bullet. Hmm. This is not an easy, oh, boop, there's a solution. There's no easy button for this. Uh, so there's got to be some kind of layered solution. And a layered solution will consider all of three things. Who originates the propaganda and what can you do about that? How is it spread and disseminated? And then what effect does it have on the end user or receiver? So on the origination side, there are things that the government can do to 
uh, pass laws and regulations to make foreign propaganda uh, either require labels or to be illegal so that you can then indict foreign propagandists and affect them. Uh, work with the social media platforms to engage in policies that do uh, pre-screening of content so that people who are originating it, uh, there's there's pre-fact checking or other kinds of things, not necessarily to prevent them from posting it, but to warn them, hey, it looks like this is false. This might be a terms of service violation. So sure. that it makes it easier to to justify to them, you know what? You posted this. We warned you when you went to post it that that it wasn't okay with our policies. We're now we're now taking away your access to this platform. Uh, stuff on the dissemination and spread. Most of the things there that are are potentially effective have to come from the social media platforms. Now there may be ways for the government to encourage or regulate that they do these things to to get them to change their algorithms so that titillating but false things aren't as heavily promoted or to help slow the spread of disinformation, again, without interrupting anybody's First Amendment rights, but just popping up a quick, hey, are you sure? The thing that it looks like you're retweeting or you're sharing has been debunked. You can share it if you want to, but just so you know, it might not be true. And then stuff on the receiver end, uh, media literacy education, uh, warning labels, uh, some things that, that some social media platforms are already doing, but uh, encouraging and promoting as much awareness as possible with the caveat that you can't make people bulletproof. You can't put it all on the end user. It's got to be a layered solution, but better informed and inoculated uh, end users are going to be more resistant to disinformation too. So we have talked about a tremendous amount of information in today's podcast. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't get to have a chance before we wrap up? Uh, just just something that that we've only touched on is these human vulnerabilities to to miss and disinformation. Uh, it's important for everyone to remember that we really are challenged cognitively uh, because high attention thinking, what Daniel Kahneman distinguishes in his book Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, slow thinking takes a lot of energy. So we're often thinking fast and using heuristics and are, are just kind of coasting around on autopilot. And that's when we're at our most vulnerable to being tricked, manipulated, or deceived. So just remember that humans are vulnerable and that we are all humans. There's this thing called blind spot bias where we're we're willing to see these vulnerabilities in others, but we imagine that we ourselves are special or, or magical or, or invulnerable. And I just want to remind everyone that, hey, you, Mark, me, Chris, everyone listening, at a bad moment, you can be tricked, manipulated, or deceived. So help help yourself, help others, be aware that don't don't believe everything you see. And and if there are ways to tidy up your your uh, media literacy, go ahead and take it. If there's some kind of tool that that you can add as a browser plugin, somebody offers you a browser plugin that will help help screen disinformation or at least pop up warnings when there's an uncredible source, that's not a bad idea. Sure, sure. Well, Dr. Paul, thanks for coming on the show and chatting cyber with us. Yeah, thanks. Happy to happy to be here. Good conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you.